It's your American patriot, DJ Drew Shelton. With insight and analysis of today's rapidly shifting world, we welcome you to the Jewess Patriot Show. Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Remember, you don't have to be Jewish to be with Cindy. And now, coming from our WGBB studios in the tri-state area, your Jewish patriot, Cindy Gross. Hello and welcome to this holiday show of the Jewish Patriots. I am your host, Cindy Gross. I am a proud American, and I am honored to celebrate Labor Day with everybody who is listening, everybody who is celebrating, and everybody who appreciates and understands the history of Labor Day and why we celebrate it. As many of you know, I open each and every show with my pearls of wisdom because I am Ziesel Perel which means sweet pearl in Yiddish. And I like to open up to talk about what is Labor Day? Because they don't teach the facts about Labor Day in schools anymore. And yes, Labor Day does have special meaning to each and every one of us, such as it's possibly the last day at the beach, the start of school, the change of seasons for clothing and food trends and that pumpkin spice coffee. But that's not what Labor Day started out to be. Labor Day became a federal holiday in the United States, celebrated on the first Monday in October to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the works and contributions of Labor Days. It's actually now a three-day weekend, and many of us actually uh, celebrated for a four- or five-day weekend celebration. We also celebrated by going shopping in those great sales. Most of you don't realize that in the late 19th century, as the trade union labor movements grew, trade unionists proposed that the day be set aside. It was first celebrated in New York City with its first parade. In 1887, Oregon became the first state in the United States to make it an official public holiday. And it became an official federal holiday in 1894. There were 30 states in the U.S. that officially celebrated Labor Day then. Just think of it. It almost doubled in size. Other countries have their own Labor Days, such as Canada's Labor Day or the European May Day. And a lot of people often compare Labor Day and Memorial Day because they can, they look at the beginning and the end of summer. And they also talk about how many people are in the labor force that overlap with the concerns of war. Labor unions really grew, especially for women, as men went to war. And unfortunately, on Memorial Day, we remember those 
and honor those that never came home. While it is the unofficial day of summer, we still have two more weeks of summer. And I just want to tell you my thoughts about Labor Day in these days, because unions today are not the unions of a 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. Work hours are not the work hours of even 20 years ago. And since COVID, they've really changed as far as office hours. And I'm seeing changes even in the past couple of years of people who work hard for their money, such as restaurant owners and some more business owners, people like your local drugstores and takeout shops that was so important during COVID and that we needed desperately for survival are now struggling to survive because of the rising cost of food, the rising cost of getting the food to the places because of the rise of gas prices, and of course the safety concerns. Doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, progressive or conservative. We have to honor quality work, merit work, people who honestly are working hard and are doing great jobs in all areas. So I say this Labor Day 2023, when things are not looking so great, let's take that extra step and say thank you to everybody who makes our lives better because of the labor they do. And with that, we have a special show featuring our veterans, our volunteers, our small business owners, and our union members from the organization of Rock and Wrap It Up. Welcome back into the program. You are listening to The Jewess Patriot with Cindy Gross. My name, Drew Shelton. I am your American Patriot DJ. And before we get to Cindy's exclusive interview today, by the way, it's going to be a 30-minute interview. So you have a half hour worth of content coming up in moments. But on this three-day Labor Day weekend, I think it's a little, I think it would be fun to change it up a little bit. Why don't we just sit back, relax, Listen to this show and appreciate Labor Day, right? And this song that I have coming up for you, it is dedicated to everyone who works that nine-to-five job on paper. But let's face it, we all truly, I think, work 24-7. This is Donna Summer. She works hard for the money.
I'm Brian Schultz, founder of the Freshwater Pearl Company. I created the company to honor my mom's legacy and her 19-year journey with breast cancer. I watched all the support she needed along her journey, and it was on my heart to find a way to give back and support other women and families experiencing breast cancer as well. Giving back is a big part of what we do. We donate 2% of our gross online sales to support many nonprofit organizations like Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, the American Cancer Society, and Runway for Recovery, to name a few. To help support our mission of giving back, please keep the Freshwater Pro Company in mind this month when you need a gift for a friend, family, or loved one. We have many pieces on sale this month and have also curated a number of prepackaged combo sets and gift ideas. We have packages made from our most popular pearl types, ranging from Baroque freshwater pearls to coin pearls, as well as our unique and stylish Keshi pearls for all types of budgets and designs. You can shop our combo packages and gift ideas at thefreshwaterprocompany.com. Thank you for supporting both our mission and our business. Welcome back on our very special episode for Labor Day weekend about local heroes. I once again bring back the leader of Rock and Wrap It Up because we all have this question. What are you doing to reduce hunger? Rock and Wrap It Up is an award-winning anti-poverty think tank that does research, discovers, and nurtures potential donors who have renewable assets to share. And I will tell you that I have met some of the most interesting people who are not only involved in this organization, but their volunteer work, their patriotism, their work with labor of all kinds goes, it's it's boundless. Just like the, the people they feed, they feed everybody of all ages, backgrounds, they are looking to pass legislation about a food donation act. They uh, constantly are looking for small and big businesses to help donate to their cause. And with us is the leader, the founder, Sid Mandelbaum. Thanks again for joining us on a holiday episode. And you are really a local hero. And tell us what are some of the newest events that we should be uh, looking forward to from the organization this fall and winter? Well, uh, the first one I always like to start with is individually, we all uh, should be looking to do tzedakah every week. And uh, one way that we have found is if you know people that are making any kind of uh, wedding uh, bar mitzvah party, to use the contract with the caterer as a harvesting tool, they easily could tell the caterer all food that is prepared but not served should feed the hungry and not be thrown away. And Rock and Wrap It Up will arrange for the recovery. And uh, we started this uh, 33 years ago with rock bands. Uh, we taught the Rolling Stones, they were the first band to join us, Aerosmith, uh, to put in their contract 
that they wanted all of their backstage catering not to be thrown away, but to feed the hungry. So the contract is such an important tool, and all of us could use it, and we could encourage our neighbors, our friends, our mishpocha, uh, if they're making a chasana, you know, please think of the poor. And for all those non-Jewish listeners, because we do have many, we're talking about charity, family, whenever they're making a wedding, any kind of party, even if you're making, let's say, uh, Labor Day, a family gathering. There are so many people that order so much extra food. Order an extra platter and have it as long as it's sealed and every uh, bit of food that uh, Rock and Wrap It Up uh, gives, it is food that you can eat. It's it's food that you you would get in a restaurant. They would use it. They would maybe uh it might be uh it's still within dates and it's safe to eat and delicious and i know that firsthand there's many kosher things there many non-kosher but it's for jews and non-jews and it really serves an entire community so i wanted to share that in 2019 your organization recovered nearly 750,000 pounds of food and delivered it to those in need just remember that was before covid and during covid it did not stop the volunteer work. In fact, I know many people in my community relied on this organization as their only source to get food because the people who run this and who work and volunteer with this, who don't get any money for doing it, were very concerned about the health, especially of disabled and elderly, and made sure that everybody had food in their homes. So with that, I'm going to let Sid introduce one of the special members of Rock and Wrap It Up. Please tell us his unique story because he is really the only person that has a story like this on Long Island, in New York, and around the country. Thank you so much, Cindy. So Fred Zalberger, uh, I had an affinity to almost immediately. Uh, Fred was born in uh, 1929. And the same year as my uh, my uncle, uh, who was killed in 1942, uh, he he was killed uh, in Auschwitz, June 8, 1942, with our entire family uh, a month before his bar mitzvah, and he had learned in his bar mitzvah lessons, and uh, there was a uh, a deportation from their town Stockholm, Poland. Uh, to Auschwitz on June 8th, and they were all killed. And uh, uh, my mother, who was uh, two years older, she was 15, uh, and her sister was 18, uh, survived because her sister realized that my mother was on the line with her brother, and my sister just took her off, and that saved her life, and that's why I'm here. So I, uh, when Fred said that he was a survivor, I I just felt such a pride, and I, I almost lived my uncle's life, if he would have lived, through Fred. And uh, Fred has a very unique story, very sad, uh, as all Holocaust stories are. Uh, but uh, Fred also is a United States uh, citizen and a veteran that uh, was called up during the Korean War, and I'm going to uh, ask Fred to tell his story. Fred? Yes, my name is Fred Salberger. I was born on December 16, 1929 in Germany. My father had a tailor shop. We lived a normal life. His business was pretty good. 
I had one sister, and when it was time to go to school, we couldn't go to regular school. We had only can go to Jewish day school. And in 1938, when Kristallnacht, my father's business was destroyed, all the synagogues were destroyed, and my father was arrested and spent already nine weeks in concentration camp Buchenwald. And when he came out from the camp, he went to Stuttgart, that's a town in Germany where the American consulate is located, and he tried to get a quota number to come to the United States because my father was also one of 13 siblings. My father was very orthodox. He went to shul two, three times a day. And uh, when he came out, he got a quarter number, but that quarter number was already too late. And we had to move on our home. And we moved like in a Jewish section. And we were the first transport in 19, November 1941, taken to the concentration camp to Riga, to the, the camp was named Stutthof. That's in Latvia, Riga. I was not even 12 years old. I was two weeks shy of my 12th birthday. And from there I went in, I was in three different camps in Latvia, once in the ghetto and once called Kaiserwald. And when the Russians came closer, they put us on a ship and we were taken to Poland, and I was in Poland in two camps, in a camp named Stutthof and another camp, and I was liberated by the Russians in 1945, and I'm the only one who is alive after the camp. I went back. The Russians couldn't understand why I wanted to go back to Germany. I should have gone to Russia. I was a young, I was only 15 years old, and they said, uh, I said, I want to see maybe any of my family is coming back. So I went back to Germany and I was back to my hometown and some, a few other Jews from different camps came back. And in, in 1947, I came to the United States as a war orphan, Jewish war orphan. President Truman signed a paper that we could come here and I didn't need any affidavit, and I came here, and I was 13 days on a ship called SS Ernie Pyle, and I was so sick that they didn't let me off the ship, and right. they took me after the boat. I thought if they're going to send me back, I would have killed myself because I was so sick, but they sent me to Ellis Island, and I was there in the hospital a few weeks I mean, until I was back in shape again. And then I was taken to a orphanage up in the Bronx, where we had excellent cares. Every day they took me to a different doctor and run by the Jewish organization, the HIAS, the UNRWA, the UJA. Excellent care. And after that, I was released and I lived with an aunt and uncle, one of my father's sister and her husband. I lived with them for 10 years till I got married. And they couldn't have been any better to me than my own parents. And in 1956, I got married. And I'm married now 67 years. And I have three children. I have three grandchildren. 
and life been good to me, America, and I was drafted in the army in 1951. And after the army, I went, when I retired, I mean, I came out of the army, I went in the meat business and I did very well. And uh, this country was very good to me. So I have a couple of questions. Do you remember your everyday life before the war? What was it like for you as a young uh, boy in Europe before Hitler came into power? I was born 29. Hitler came to power in 1933, so I was very young. You're very young, but the early years, maybe, before Kristallnacht. Like I mentioned before, when it was time to go to school, we couldn't go to regular school. We only go to Jewish day school. And after 1938, we had to wear a Jewish star. And when you walked on the street, people cursed you out and called you all kinds of names. And even threw rocks at you. And it's, my father and my mother said, just uh, we live. It's going to be all right. But it wasn't all right. So you really only remember times where there was discrimination. Not so different from what you're describing, throwing rocks at Jews on the streets today in New York, unfortunately. Not much difference. So do you remember your parents telling you stories about their life before all of this in Europe? Because they probably were there for generations. Well, my father, like I said, my father was one of 13 sisters and brothers, and half of them left Germany and went to different countries and survived, and the other half got killed in the concentration camp. And my, when I was with my parents, they always said, it's going to be all right, but uh, it was not all right. They hoped I- the best. And how did you just, uh, you mentioned three camps you were in. How did you survive from each camp? Muscle. Not how smart you are or how you are, just plain. And you had to work. If you didn't work, you did not survive. Talk about your father father also. My my father was with me in in the first few camps. We were all together. And my father was a tailor. And like I mentioned before, and he made tailor the uniforms for the SS, so we had a couple of privileges. So uh, that's it. So that saved you. Yeah. And how did you meet? Is your wife from also Europe, or was she American? My wife is American, and I met her. That's another story. I went on vacation in 1954 or 55 to Cuba. But before Castro came on, Batista was there, and I took another fellow with me on vacation, and he was a super, super intellectual. He became a dean of George Washington uh, College in St. Louis, and he took pictures of everything, and then after a few weeks we were back, he called me and he says, you want to come and see the pictures, and you know, like the Jewish mother, his mother came and says, you have a girlfriend? I said, no. So she gave me my wife's telephone number. And that's how we met. So the uniqueness of your story is not only being now, unfortunately, there are so many survivors that are not with us anymore. And we are lucky enough to have you. But the fact that you went into 
an American uniform and you fought for America during the Korean War. That must have been, I mean, that in itself is a story. How did you feel going to another country fighting in war? Well, listen, you have to do what you have to do. You do the best. This country was very good to me, so I feel very good about it. What what do you say to people that today say the Holocaust doesn't exist or it didn't exist? Well, that's that's a terrible thing, and people should speak up more. And you know, people speaking up, but still, there's some people who are fanatics that don't believe in it. And how did you get involved with Rock and Wrap It Up? Well, he, he uh, Sid is a temple member. We belong to the same synagogue. I belong to the shul over 60 years. I live in out here in the same house 63 years. I'm married 67 years. All my children, the first children was born in Farcells, where we lived first. But I live here 63 years. I have, like I mentioned before, three children. One is 66, one is 63, and the other one is 60. And... Do you keep in touch? Were you able to keep in touch with Holocaust survivors that you went through the camps with? Well, there's less and less left. I have one good friend, but this is a story by itself. We lived in the same street in Europe. I lived street number six, and he lived street number 12. And we were taken, we went to school together. We were exactly the same age. Tomorrow he's going to be 94 years old, but he's okay. very good. He lives in Florida, and he's got Parkinson's disease, and right now he's even in the hospital. He's too not good at all. And we were taken to concentration camp at the same time. We were liberated. We were back to Germany. We went on the same boat, came to the United States. We lived a block away with aunt and uncles in Washington Heights, and we were drafted in the army the same day. And we're still friends and we talk to each other, especially the wives are very friendly too. That's an amazing story of survival and friendship. I mean, we take friendships so much for granted today. People don't appreciate friendships. And what you guys went through, may nobody know what that is like. And then to maintain this friendship all these years and build new lives. Just incredible. And there's less and less. I had about five friends, so we were both about the same age, who survived also Latvia, but now they're gone. And when you went back to Germany to your uh, home, what was it like? First of all, 90% of the town was destroyed, but there was a Jewish old age home and former Jewish hospital, and that was not destroyed, so they put us up in this place. And we about 10 of us, far, I mean, 10 of the former occupied uh, from that town and a few other from different camps. We stopped there and they fed us and we slept there, but uh, they didn't take care of anything else. So was your town predominantly Jewish before the Holocaust? No, there's a town of about 100,000, about 3,000 Jews lived there. Mm-hmm. And were they were religious like your father and the family you were brought up in? There was a couple of synagogues, but they were mostly religious. Mm-hmm. But we were the first 200 Jews 
in November of 1941 who were deported from Germany to Latvia. They put 200 of us on a train and we stopped in another town called Nuremberg and they brought another 800,000 Jews aboard and then the train left for Latvia. And the first camp was not even a concentration camp, it was an extermination camp. About 10,000 occupants who came every other day, another transport came with a thousand, and the people just disappeared. In the end, only 20 people of our people survived. Oh, that's there's no words for this. I mean, and the fact that you're sharing it with us, I'm just touched because what I see going on in the world today and this the rise of anti Semitism everywhere. It's so, so scary. And knowing that every year less and less Holocaust survivors are around makes it even scarier because if we forget, it's going to happen again. And who would ever think in your lifetime you'd see this rise of anti-Semitism in America? It's not only in America, it's all over the country. It's all over the world. So, Sid... You brought Fred to me and you said, we have to share your story. And it was, but I want to say something about Sid a minute. Sid is able to bring together people from all backgrounds, not just Jewish or Holocaust surviving backgrounds and bring them together and work together and become like a family. I mean, people come and socialize just as much as they come to volunteer here. Tell our audience just some of the stuff that you do and some of the, you know, things that are happening. Well, uh, the reason why we even set up a veteran farmer's market, uh, which is what you're speaking about, was uh, I serve as commander of American Legion Lawrence Cedarhurst Post 339 for the last nine years. I would like to give it up, but nobody wants to take it. And, uh, I would love to give it up at this point and, and help them, but we don't have it. About three and a half years ago when COVID started, I saw that so many of our veterans who were older were at risk and they had to go to stores to buy food. And I thought I could maybe use my influence, uh, my contacts uh, through Rock and Wrap It Up to, to change that. And uh, we approached Trader Joe's uh, in Hewlett and we approached Costco that were already giving us some food for Rock and Rabbit Up for a pantry in the five towns. And I told them what my uh, idea was and they, they thought it was a great idea. And I put together, uh, through the American Legion, uh, some volunteers, uh, Pat Alicia, Barry DeGroote, Jay Zalberger, who's not in the American Legion, but is someone that has a huge heart, uh, and uh, Michelle Shornstein. And uh, these are people that already I had worked with without charity, and they all wanted help. And my wife is a Starka, which is a strong one, as they say. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, Diane goes to the loading dock, and we separate boxes. If we have doubles, it goes directly to a pantry, and uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, the last three and a half years, uh, we have probably 
uh, collected over 600,000 pounds of food donated to us, uh, that our veterans, and as you said earlier, we have people that are at risk. Uh, we have a couple of uh, people that are going uh, through chemo right now and also uh, should not be exposed to uh, anything. So we've invited them to come to uh, take food, and they do. And uh, we have some widows of veterans, and we have some people that are senior citizens in our local community that I also don't want to go into stores. And we've asked uh, and invited them uh, to come and to take food. And it is food that is fabulous. It's in date. Uh, That's the main thing. It's food that you'd buy in a store. And uh, we want to make sure that people that are uh, at risk uh, will have a reduced risk. Uh, As you had mentioned, uh, so many of our uh, people have have very little contact. Many of them are widows and widowers. And this is an opportunity for them to sit for a couple of hours and be, be, uh, be a mensch and uh, be, uh, be a human being so and and speak to other people. That's and, right. It's so important. That communication is so important. I, unfortunately, I'm always working or running or doing, but I mean, people treat me like I'm family there, and I don't even know. And that's why this is so important in this time when everybody's so angry and frustrated and worrying about the cost of everything and how they're going to pay their bills and if the streets are going to be safe. It's like a shelter place. And it's amazing also, I just have to emphasize before I ask my next question, how many people that come to this are so involved in so many of the other local community organizations and volunteer their time? It's like that saying is, if you could do one thing, you could do everything. Everybody here is just 100% giving. So my next question is, you mentioned the American Legion. I know that there are many chapters. Tell them more about this chapter, because I know that this is a ve- uh, also a very big pet project for you, Sid. Well, uh, I'm very humbled uh, to be in this Legion post. Uh, this year, we're celebrating our 100th anniversary. Our Legion was started uh, in uh, February of uh uh, 1923 by uh, World War One veterans, and uh, one of the veterans uh, actually, his father <laughs> served as Secretary of State under President Taft, and uh, he himself, <clears throat> Cornelius Wickersham, um, served under Blackjack Pershing in the. Uh, 1910 to 13 uh, Indian-Mexican wars in Texas. And then uh, Cornelius uh, got out. Uh, He was 43 in 1923. Uh, And uh, he then, uh, after he uh, finished his years as commander, he went on to become the head of the war college in World War II, for, at that time, General Eisenhower. So we have a long history of doing amazing things as a post. But the one that sticks in my mind, which I I always talk about, it's like when they say you have to repeat the story of Pesach 
every year of mm-hmm. us leaving Egypt. Mm-hmm. Well, we had, uh, when I became commander, a man called me up and said, Sid, you don't know me. My name is Jerry Richter. I live in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, my father, John Richter, died in 1961. And uh, do you have records in your post that go back to uh, the 1920s? And I said, we don't. My records go back to around 1970, which is still 50 years ago. Uh, and I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, every Thanksgiving from the time, and this guy was in his 80s, uh, said my father every Thanksgiving would tell a story about how he, in 1923, when he was 25 years old and a World War I veteran, beat up the Ku Klux Klan in Cedarhurst Park, and uh, they tried to lay a wreath on uh, Thanksgiving in Cedarhurst Park, uh, and uh, six boys' names were put on a plaque. They were all killed in World War One, and one of the boys' parents were in the Ku Klux Klan, which oh, was wow. on Long Island in 1923. Uh, it was the second uprising. There was a a, a Klan uprising in 1870s, then in the 1920s, and then again in the 1950s. But in this particular case, the Klan uh, wanted to lay a wreath next to the American Legion wreath for these six young boys that were killed. Wow. And uh, uh, Cornelius Wickersham had an ad hoc meeting, and we decided not to do it. And at that point, the Klan became irate and tried to lay the wreath anyway. Well, John Richter took the wreath and destroyed it. And subsequently, there were fistfights uh, in the park, uh, which were broken up by the local police with the Klan. And the Klan was so big on Long Island in 1924, 27,000 Long Islanders marched on Sunrise Highway in the town of Freeport that were members of the Klan. Wow. I would love to talk uh, about this further. I'm going to bring you back to discuss this because this is fascinating and this is part of Long Island history. But we've got to wrap this. We've got to rock and wrap it up. Okay, well. So I just want to tell everybody... We will continue this. This is, we're going to have you back just to talk and we're going to bring on people from the American Legion and share these stories. And I'm actually going to be sharing this through the rock and wrap it up Instagram account. So we could actually get this out here. This is Long Island history. We have a vibrant history here that we don't talk about enough facts and people that have ancestries that relate to it. So I want to thank Sid and Fred and everybody at Rock and Wrap It Up for everything they do for this country, for Long Island, for New York. And we do look forward to having you again in the near future. And we are going to talk more about this American Legion stuff because it's really, really fascinating. And these are the kind of things I learned from these people. And I want you to join me. So Sid, Fred, thank you so much. Happy, happy Labor Day weekend.
Spot, an interview right there by the Jewess Patriot, Cindy Gross. Welcome back into the program. I am your American Patriot, DJ Drew Shelton, with you on this Labor Day weekend. And you know, that's how fitting it is, because I played a song earlier, you know, the 9 to 5 song, you know, we're working hard for the money. Uh, but you know, we also, we, we work for the weekend, and I'm going to leave you with that song, because on this Labor Day weekend, I want you just to sit back, relax, take all the stress of the world, you know, and, and remove it. You know, I, I love this Bible verse uh, in the Bible. It comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. And that's what it's all about. So don't stress, rest this Labor Day weekend. You work hard, relax, and enjoy it with your family and friends. Until next time, take care of yourself, love somebody, be kind, and choose joy. See ya.
Cindy Gross, the Jewess Patriot. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for watching the Jewish Patriot Show with Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross. Be sure to download Cindy's next program as well as previous ones available internationally on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and in Israel on Jewish Podcasts. See you next time on the Jewish Patriot Show.